I invite you to take his word, God's word this morning, and to turn in the New Testament to the book of Romans. The book of Romans chapter 1, as we step away from our Sunday morning series in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which has been a tremendous blessing. It's been so rich, uh, it's been so needful for us as we've seen Christ uh, and his ministry uh, confronting worry and anxiety in the lives of his followers, uh, confronting doubts and unrealized expectations, spiritual apathy, and then most recently this issue of mercy, a lack of mercy and compassion. Uh, Today I want us to consider the topic of human tragedy. I want us to, to spend some time thinking about our response to tragedy when it strikes and to think about the message that we are intended to understand when tragedy strikes, but the message that we often miss. Now, we're already into the month of February, but a few weeks ago, I found myself, maybe like some of you, looking back over the past year, and as I went back in my mind to the beginning of 2021, I remembered how eager so many people were to get out of 2020 and to get into 2021, hoping for some some better times uh, in their life. 2020 was obviously a rough time for so many of the people that we knew, uh, believers and unbelievers. But this is what struck me. For a lot of folks, 2021 was not less difficult than 2020. In fact, for many, it was more difficult, more challenging. In fact, in our own family, we lost three loved ones in 2021. My dad, who had lived with us for almost eight, close to eight years, my grandmother, who lived in Canton, and my wife's stepfather, who lived in Somerset, Kentucky. Some of you lost a friend or a family member as well last year, or some other kind of tragedy struck close to home that had an unmistakable impact on your life. And then what about those people in December, you remember this, just before Christmas, those from the Midwest whose homes and businesses were destroyed by the more than 30 tornadoes that tore through Kentucky and seven other states killing at least 88 people. Or what about the more than 1,000 residents of Boulder County, Colorado, who just before the new year, on December 30th, lost their homes to the Marshall Fire? Some people, even professing Christians, have a difficult time processing these kinds of tragedies. And I'll admit, it's a challenge to, to take all of these images in, And all of this information in, and even though we may not be the one who lost their home or their livelihood or their good health or their child or their parent, these things can still have a profound effect on our lives. Because we don't live in a small world, a little world that is unaware of what's going on in other places and with other people. We're living in a day when we feel like we are bearing the weight of all the disasters of all the world all the time. Again, 
electronic communication, media, and mass communication has its advantages. This is not one of them, right? Earthquakes, famine, plagues, avalanches, wars, genocide, terrorism, plane crashes, train wrecks, ferry boat disasters, gang murders, terrible crimes, disease, hurricanes, car wrecks, cancer, shootings, the killing of the unborn, house fires, and tornadoes. Whether it's moral evil or natural evil, we hear about it all the time. In fact, sometimes even as it is unfolding, right? Chances are that if Russia invades the Ukraine right now, that before our sermon is over, some of you will already know, right? These things are are happening. We're hearing of them even as they are unfolding. If there's a school shooting that takes place this week, there's a good chance that even as it's taking place, and maybe even before they've resolved the situation, you'll get a notification on your phone or on your computer that this is taking place. In fact, if a child in Cherokee County goes missing, some of your phones will go off, right? You may get an amber alert or something like that. And the tragedies and and, and the weight of the tragedies of the world, not just our local community, finds its way onto our emotional backs. And it's difficult to have and to maintain the right perspective, uh, a biblical perspective. The calamities aren't necessarily any worse or any more frequent than they've been in past generations and past years. It could simply be that we have more exposure to them. And so it appears that way. But still, the world is a dangerous place to live. Calamity is everywhere. And when calamity and human tragedy strike, the question always surfaces, what does it mean? And if there's a God, why does it happen? Is God trying to say something? Is there some purpose in this? Is there some meaning What is the message of human tragedy? Sadly, in these kinds of situations, what's really revealed is that so many people have such a distorted or a deficient view of God and such a high view of themselves. People's view of God's character, their view of man, their view of the world, their definition of success their understanding of truth, their beliefs regarding sin and suffering, and any ruling desires in their hearts are put on full display, and it's often not good. There's a QA and a clip on YouTube from a Legionnaire conference years ago in 2014. The MC of the conference, Chris Larson, posed the following question to the panel. Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was God's wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? The late R.C. Sproul gave this arresting response. He said, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day. 
and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? Sproul went on to say, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of sin, he says, any understanding of who God is, that's the question. You see, that's what often happens in the human heart. And it's more obvious when tragedy strikes. What happens in the human heart is that we turn the paradigm upside down. We look horizontally rather than vertically, and we begin to drift away from a right understanding of who God is and who the creature or who the sinner is before him. The world around us and the culture don't help because they are constantly suppressing those realities. And Christians can sometimes fall prey to the same kind of thinking, that somehow God is unjust, that somehow the punishment did not fit the crime. But Romans 1 is the foundation. It's the foundation of our perspective as believers. It, it tells us the way things really are. If you're there, you can follow along, beginning in verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This is helpful. What does Paul say here? Well, he says that the evidence of God's existence is all around us every day. We observe nature and its wonders. We observe mankind. We, we pay attention to the intricacy of of man's physiology as well as proofs of man's immaterial heart that controls and directs. We observe the sense of right and of wrong that we have built within us. We know instinctively that killing another human being is a violation of human dignity and human sanctity and human equality. I remember when we were expecting our fifth child, Jude, we were having to see a specialist because in the womb, Jude had a single artery umbilical cord, which was a concern for 
the doctors, and I remember us sitting down with the doctor in his office and him talking with us about the risks to the baby, what kinds of complications or defects that Jude might be born with. I don't think the doctor was a Christian, but I'll never forget the story that he shared with us about a squirrel. A squirrel that he had observed for years on his back deck in Cobb County that every winter would gather nuts and acorns for its babies. And how instinctive that was for an adult squirrel to care for and to nurture and to want to protect its young. I suppose that was his way of agreeing with our decision to not consider an abortion because of potential challenges that Jude or we as his parents might face in the future. But it was interesting to hear the specialist point out the obvious, not from Scripture, but from nature. Paul says we know these things. It's automatic. We have an active conscience. We have strong demands for ultimate justice. Disease and death cause us to long for a time when all of that is gone and all of, all of that is resolved. Where does that come from? That's not all the Apostle Paul states here. He also states the fact that mankind is hypocritical. Because man denies that God exists, he suppresses, Paul says, that truth and unrighteousness, but then he turns around and acts like he can borrow from those realities to get what he wants. For example, people will deny God exists, which means they should not believe in the concept of moral accountability or justice. Yet when someone hurts them... They demand that very thing. But why? Why would they demand something that doesn't exist? Or people will deny the existence of God and then turn to find help outside of humanity. When a tragedy strikes, people who supposedly don't believe in God suddenly say things like, we could use more prayer. I guess the obvious thing, pray what? And to whom? And for what purpose? Paul says we're hypocrites. We're inconsistent. Or sometimes people deny God's existence and then spend their whole life railing against the idea of it. But if God doesn't exist, what's the big deal? Why not just treat it like any other difference between two people? Why such hostility? You like Chick-fil-A, they like Zaxby's. So what? Why do they rail against it? Because Romans 1 says it's built in. It nags them that there is that reality. And so they push against it constantly. They do everything, Paul says, to drown it out, to, to shut it down. And when God allows them to experience life in a fallen world, 
they will raise up some idea that if there is a God, that he has to be unjust. They'll think to themselves, or often verbalize it, I will never worship a God that allows that kind of thing to happen. What Paul lays out here in Romans 1 confronts that kind of sinful unbelief. It confronts that sinful notion that we have a right to put God on trial. It corrects our sinful perspectives. Because we have to look at these things from God's point of view. And from where God sits, this is the situation. Every day, people live their lives defiant against the very truth that hits their heart and mind that there is a God who is worthy of our allegiance, praise, and gratitude. They suppress it. They deny it. They belittle the truth. They belittle God himself. They denounce God for his providences, even though they claim he doesn't exist. They don't like his person, if indeed there is a God. How do they suppress it? Paul says, gives us the answer to that, with further unrighteousness. That is to say they sin more aggressively. They more frequently hurt. They more frequently use others and live for themselves. They lie more often. They boast more triumphantly. They blame shift and make more excuses for their own conduct. This is how the culture goes. From God's perspective, that is what his creatures are doing. They are doing what Adam did in the beginning. This human being made of dirt says, I will not worship and obey you as the creator. And we think the punishment is too severe. Adam did not die that day. And countless people don't die every day for all of their railings. Evil, death, tragedy, affliction, human suffering, and natural disasters, they are a consequence of the fall. They are a result of man's pride in his humanity against God. They are a result of sinful rebellion that entered the world in Genesis 3 and continues to this very day. Sinners even if they acknowledge that God might exist, rail at him for not giving them what they want. And we think the consequences are unfair and unjustified when God does not allow them to unfold. From our perspective and our own unbelief, the concept of a God like that seems tyrannical. He appears to be some kind of ogre, some kind of hideous monster that demands allegiance or else. But from God's perspective, which is the only righteous perspective, fallen man can observe that God exists and that he is a faithful creator. Man can see God's power. He can witness God's greatness and his majesty, but he takes that truth and he daringly throws it back in God's face. And still, 
He wakes up the next day breathing. He goes for a jog. He enjoys a cup of coffee and a satisfying breakfast. He delights in his family. He works, he plays, he earns, he spends, he rests. But he does it all for his own advantage. This is turning the entire universal paradigm on its head. And God patiently waits. And he allows sinners to wallow in the folly and consequences of their life as a mercy instead of wiping them off this planet right then and there. And in the middle of it, he is constantly calling out, I have made a way of escape. I have made a way of redemption. There is salvation in my son. It's no wonder that verse 20 says that they are without excuse. Romans chapter 2, Paul continues in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is what we do. We make little hierarchies, little, little pecking orders, by looking at the worst people in society and saying, I'm better than them. I've got this because I am enjoying the blessings of God. This is the tendency of the human human heart. But notice verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? MacArthur says of these terms, kindness refers to the benefits God gives. Forbearance refers to the judgment he withholds and patience to the duration of both. So while people are running amok and raging about with all of this freedom and personal license, they take it as personal innocence. They assume that there must not be a judgment coming. Everything about their lives must be fine. Because if they have the freedom to sin the way that they do, then their license to do it must mean that they are innocent in the doing of it. What Paul says is that in reality, they are taking lightly the kindness and forbearance of God. They think little of those things. They see them as of little value. And that's not all that they do. They also look at God's patience and they take it as personal entitlement. They see that God waits. And while he waits, they think that they're entitled to do what they do. God is so kind, 
so patient. And when some form of consequence does come, they think that he is unjust. Verse 5 says that all you're doing is storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you're still there in Romans, turn back a few books to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus dealt with this same issue. This same issue of God's mercy and the same issue of God's kindness, but also this tendency in our lives to play judge of another. This tendency to think that because we are surviving, God must be pleased with us and that we must be innocent. And Jesus absolutely confronts and shatters that perspective. In Luke 13, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as God continues to be patient and kind. And what we learn is that when moral evil happens or, or natural evil happens, Jesus is about to say that those things are intended to lead us to repentance. Because those things are intended to wake up the conscience of the sinner. Luke 13, verse 1, Luke records there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will all likewise perish. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure or fertilizer. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What an amazing demonstration of God's grace. Jesus has just been giving this intense instruction going back to the beginning of chapter 12, in the presence, it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, of thousands who had gathered, but obviously including his disciples, giving them warnings as he is making his way to Jerusalem in the the final months toward the end of his, his earthly ministry. And he had just taught them that when he comes to accomplish the work of redemption on the cross, And when he rises from the dead, it's going to be a fire that he is lighting on earth. And there's going to be a line in the sand. He says this back in verse 49 of Luke 12. He is going to come. 
Christ is going to identify with sinners and die in their place. And when they believe on him, there is going to be a division. There's going to be a separation. Notice verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. The true will be set against the false, he says. Believers will be set against unbelievers. There's going to be a clear line, and many people will miss the Savior because of their pride. They will choose to ignore the obvious. And they will choose to not concern themselves with what is about to happen at the end of their life. That is what Jesus says in verses 54 to 59. People willfully choose to not settle their accounts. They minimize the threat of accountability and judgment. And so that, that is the context. The, the subject is judgment. And Jesus ends chapter 12 by taking, talking about the fact that a person who is going to court who is guilty of something, better settle with his accuser before he gets to the judge, or else the judge is going to expose his guilt, turn him over to the officer, and put him in prison until he pays every last penny. So judgment is the theme, and at some unspecified time later, but on the same occasion, says chapter 13, verse 1, that piques the interest of these people. So it's the same crowd that Jesus has been addressing in chapter 12, but a smaller group of people in that crowd reported to him about this tragic incident involving Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And apparently, as it had happened, Pilate ordered the murder of some Galilean Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem to sacrifice. So Pilate comes, not personally, but likely his soldiers find these individuals in the temple and slice them up so that in a very gruesome way, it describes their blood as being mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. It was not only a tragic murder and slaughter, but it was a moral evil perpetrated against them by an out-of-control ruler and something that was highly desecrating to the Jewish people. This is the kind of man Pilate was. Pilate had a reputation for being inflexible. He had a reputation for being very wicked and self-willed. His rule was marked by briberies and robberies, corruption, and insults to Jews, abuse, frequent executions without trials, and savage ferocity. In fact, sometimes these things even got Pilate into trouble, into hot water with Rome itself, because his actions often stirred up the Jews and led to riots and unrest in Palestine. So just know that later when you, when you see Pilate with Christ just before Christ is crucified, when you see Pilate wash his hands and tell the crowd that he is not going to crucify Jesus, it's not because he is a decent man. 
It's not because of his nobility. It's because he's covering himself. It's nothing more than a political move based completely on self-interest and preservation. Now, the incident referred to here in Luke 13 has no details given. It's, it's mentioned without specifics whether these Galileans were some kind of, of zealots or whether they were insurrectionists. We, we're not for sure about that. Uh, how many there are, we don't know, although it's likely not dozens or hundreds, but a smaller number. What we do know is that they were brutally murdered and their sacrifices desecrated. It is a tragedy. It is a moral evil perpetrated on them by a man characterized by wickedness. But notice where Jesus goes with this. Jesus wants them to think about this. None of those Galileans woke up that morning with any idea that that would be their last day on earth. Which, if you think about it, is true in most cases involving moral evil, right? People do not generally walk towards moral evil. People don't generally expect to be on the receiving end of moral evil. They don't expect to be killed by a drunk driver or to be betrayed or taken advantage of, or beaten to death. And none of those Galileans woke up that day and knew that they would soon face the living and the holy God. Death was sudden and unexpected. So this scenario is presented to Jesus, but notice that behind this report, Jesus reads an attempt at self-justification, rooted in the common notion that disaster befalls those who deserve it. Verse 2, he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? What an interesting way to introduce a response to this news. What's the point of the question? Well, the point is, this tragedy did not happen because they were more or less sinful. In fact, this tragedy did not happen because they were more or less godly. In fact, those Galileans that were slaughtered had not even lived up to that point because they were less sinful than the Romans. They lived that long because God had been patient with them. And, and what is this kind of human tragedy, this, this exhibition, this display of moral evil supposed to do? It's meant to wake up the sinner's conscience. It's a time of sadness to be sure, it's a time of grief. We weep when we or someone else experiences those kinds of things, but it's also a grace from the Lord. For many reasons, but in this case, 
it challenges our assumptions when these kinds of things happen. Because when tragedy and disaster strike, it's a time of vulnerability. We are vulnerable to dangerous assumptions in our hearts because of our sin. And Jesus highlights the danger with these words. Do you think? Do you suppose? Because too many people at the time and too many people today assume that good things ought not to happen to bad people. And bad things ought not to happen to good people and especially God's people. So if you have calamitous events in your life, this must be the judgment of God on your life because you are a bad person. That's how the thinking goes. And if you survive or if you are spared the calamity, you must be good or innocent in your heart and life. You remember this was a problem with Job's friends. In Job chapter 4, verse 7, Eliphaz kicks things off with this question. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Job, you must be hiding something. You must have done something really wicked. That was sort of the prevailing conventional wisdom theology of Israel. And it goes way back. But even in New Testament times, this was the way that many Jews thought about tragedy. You remember in John chapter 9, there was a man born blind, and Jesus' disciples asked him, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You can see the mindset that if something bad happens, it's not a sign of God's gracious patience that you're the survivor of it. It's a sign that you're separate from it and that God is favoring you because of the good-natured person that you are. Or maybe you equate a tragedy-free season of life with God's blessing upon your basic goodwill toward others. You might even question the justice and the goodness of God if you end up having to experience the effects of some evil in the world. That's exactly what was happening here. Making all kinds of false assumptions rather than seeing themselves rightly before God as sinners who need to be reconciled to God, who don't know when their end will come and who don't deserve another breath. To see it any other way is foolish, Jesus says. Sometimes we develop notions about how God owes us protection. Protection from calamity, since we try to live better lives than other people do. Jesus says, if that's what you suppose, your theology is terrible theology. Sure, sometimes God does bring judgment. He'll do that occasionally on the heads of certain sinners, immediate, instant, 
judgment on individuals. Herod is an example of that in the book of Acts in chapter 12. And sometimes there are built-in judgments to sinful behavior, natural consequences, if you will, of a sinful life. We see that in Romans 1. Wicked men and women receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. These are natural consequences, and sometimes God allows them. And sometimes he doesn't. And people, for a while, escape the personal consequences of their sin. But it is not true that all moral evils or natural calamities that come upon the unsuspecting are some sign of God's recompense against those people for being greater sinners than the rest of us who survive it. And Jesus is not only talking about moral evil such as crimes and murders, he's also speaking of natural evil. Not just tragedy by human hands, but tragedy by natural causes. And he reinforces his point here by giving an example of his own. Verse 4. Or those 18, he says, on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders or debtors than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Now, Siloam is a a section of, of Jerusalem Uh, The lower city, it's where the southern and the eastern wall meet, and there's the pool of Siloam uh, that was there, and they built this huge wall or, or this tower adjacent to it, which apparently collapsed. And as everyone scattered, when that wall started to come down, 18 of them did not make it, either workers or people watching or walking by were crushed and died. Again, the people in the crowd do not bring this up. Jesus brings this up, and his reason for doing that is to press the lesson even further. Those individuals who died from this particular tragedy didn't wake up the day that that happened and think to themselves, I think I'll face my creator today. Listen, it doesn't matter if it's an earthquake. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's a, a, a tidal wave. It could be a collapsing candle factory. Or it could be COVID. God knows when your days are going to end, and he knows how they will end. Jesus says that in every one of those tragedies is a gracious call of God upon your conscience. And by the way, calamity is not God's way to single out the especially evil people. Disaster and God's judgment are not synonymous. Those who encounter tragedy are not necessarily those whose wickedness had qualified them for it. And if you were there that day when the tower fell, just because the tower fell and you had just left with your water five minutes earlier doesn't mean you're more righteous than the ones who were crushed. In Charles Spurgeon's day, there were a couple of severe calamities that occurred in London at the time. One of them was a train wreck in which two dozen or so people died. 
The other was a tunnel disaster which killed quite a number of people. And it became such an issue among Christian people that Spurgeon delivered a sermon on those two accidents from this text in Luke 13. It was September 8th, 1861, and he preached a sermon to dispel the absurd idea that God killed those people because they were traveling on a Sunday. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> the pastors, our pastor's last two messages regarding the Sabbath. This was, this was the idea that Christians were was floating around. They were embracing this, that somehow, because those had traveled on a Sunday, that God would do this. He would bring this calamity and this disaster upon them. Spurgeon wanted to straighten that out. This is what he said in his sermon, quote, As I look for a moment on the poor, mangled bodies of those who had been so suddenly slain, my eyes find tears, but my heart does not boast. Far from me be a boastful cry, God, I thank thee that I am not as these men are. No, 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 it's not the spirit of Christ nor the spirit of Christianity. While we can thank God that we are preserved, yet we can say it is of your mercy that we are not consumed. That's the only issue. You don't live because you deserve to live. You live because though you deserve to die, God is merciful, end quote. So the question is not, what kind of God does these things? The real question is, why does God allow anyone to live? The fact that we take another breath is because God is merciful. It's the patience and forbearance of God leading us to repentance. We all deserve to die, but instead God lets us live and laugh and love and enjoy all the blessings of life and all of its fullness and all of its richness. What's that about? It's showing you the patience and forbearance of God, the kindness of God, the compassion of God with the intent of leading you to repentance. It's time to repent. It's giving you the opportunity. And these are the realities that Jesus says you must know. Repentance is the only way, and there is only one life and then the judgment. There won't be some moment once tragedy strikes and you stand before God to then choose Christ. You may perish on earth in some unprepared way. But if you do not repent before that happens, you will perish for eternity in the same unprepared way. Now, this is the amazing thing. The parable. The parable that Jesus gives to illustrate this. It should be shorter than it is. It should not have one particular section. It should not have, if you will, the ending that it has, but it does. You'll notice in verse 6, this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none, and said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And that is where it should end. That is where the parable should end because it fits with what Jesus has already said in the previous verses. Jesus is warning them. 
But you have in this parable this vineyard keeper, this, this gardener who says to the owner, wait a minute. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. It's not as if the gardener and this, this vine dresser had not done this already, right? I mean, the assumption here is that this is a faithful gardener, right? He's been fertilizing. He's been tending to this. He's been showing kindness and care in this situation. And yet, he says, wait a minute. Let, let me do it again. Wait a little bit longer. Then, verse 9, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. I can't help but go back in my mind to Luke chapter 3 with John the Baptist down at the river talking about the Messiah coming and saying, you had better bear fruits in keeping with repentance because even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Right? Luke chapter 3 verse 9. The decree has already gone out. Cut it down. Hold that axe for just a moment. Now, we might be tempted to think, if one more year, why not yet another year? Or another five years? Again, that is just the temptation of the, of, 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 of the human heart. Because the real question is, why even one more year? Why even one more month? Why even one more week? Why even one more day? Why the extra time? Three years with no fruit. God is so patient. That is what tragedy, that is what calamity should remind us of every time. Don't tread on his grace. Don't trample it. God is patient, but God's patience has a purpose. It's not an indifferent kind of patience. It's an opportunity inside that patience that you need to know about. Why is God being patient? To give you time to repent. I don't know how much time you have. You may have until Jesus comes. Or you may have until your death. Of course, there's also the possibility that God simply says, that's it. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 17, we find this warning. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. That's frightening. It's frightening that you may not even have until your death. You may just have until God decides to let you alone. And if you have come to Christ, that is why he was patient. Because he was redeeming you. He was saving you. 
not on the basis of deeds you've done in righteousness, Titus 3.5 says, but according to his own mercy. So the lesson is this. We are all living under the patience of God. And the only appropriate response is for us to repent and to trust in Christ. And unless the repentance called for in verses 3 to 5 happens, it will be too late. God is not slack with his promise. He is not impotent. He is not powerless. He is certainly not indifferent. He is holy and just and majestic and sovereign. And yes, he is also kind and patient and merciful. May we keep that in our hearts this week, turning to him and seeking him always. And may the Lord use us to spread this word of warning and of mercy to sinners everywhere. Let's stand. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for these very specific words from the lips of our Savior, words that pierce and penetrate and stir our hearts and that leave us no escape from reality. We pray that there would be many today who would repent and believe and embrace Jesus Christ. We certainly thank you for those who have. For those of us who know you, Lord, we we confess how often we have forgotten your lessons and your warnings and how we have been too attached to this world and allowed our love for you to grow cold. Would you strengthen our hearts? Would you lead us and keep us in and by your truth? Would you cause us to love you in a greater way, understanding your grace to us in Christ? Thank you for your compassion and kindness that you've shown every one of us. Thank you for your patience that waited for us to come and that waits for sinners even today. May they respond and may we be ever grateful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.